So this week we are in Mark chapter 2. Last week uh, Patrick finished up for us in Mark chapter 1, which we will reference some here. I'm going to read the section we'll be looking at here before us. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the door, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they just questioned within themselves, said to him, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Thy sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up and take your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. So the first thing we're going to look at here is just noting, following, of course, the the narrative isn't so abruptly split up as we begin Mark chapter 2. At the end of Mark chapter 1, as we looked at last week with Patrick, uh, he had healed a leper. And he had instructed the leper not to go uh, broadcasting it, but to go show himself to the priest. But he instead did, in fact, go talk freely about it, such that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but went out into desolate places. Even then, the people were trying to come to him from every quarter. So he has is, he is gone out away from the people for some time, and we enter into Mark chapter 2 with him coming back in from this period after some days. He goes to Capernaum, and it was reported that he was at home. Now, some have uh, recommended we might see this as being in a house. So this is at least a house where he's welcome, whether this is uh, uh, his own home or not is, in that sense, superfluous. But he is in a house at least where he is welcome, where he is comfortable at least at this time. So what specifically do we find him doing here? Do you remember what Patrick told us we were looking at as the, a fundamental function of his ministry, his primary focus here during this time? Was he performing a bunch of miracles? Primarily, he is preaching the word. He is preaching the word to them. His primary mission at this time is not this this work of healing, although, of course, that is especially tied to the spiritual that is fundamentally there, a part of his overall earthly life and ministry. But fundamentally, this is he's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. We looked at that in chapter 1 as well. We're not given any details here as to what specifically he's saying. I, I myself think it would be 
fantastic if we had a sermon of Jesus recorded beyond, say, Matthew chapter 5 or something, the Sermon on the Mount. I would be very interested to know what he was saying here, but we're not given the, the privilege of, of that. We do know, of course, he is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He's preaching the word that is consistent with everything else that we see in the gospels. Now, is Jesus alone? He is so far from alone that they are crowding around him. Nobody can even enter into, get into the door. Now, there's a question that should arise in our minds. Why is he not alone? What, what is everyone doing there? Now, as we ask these kinds of questions, we should not engage in idle speculation that's separate from the, the text we have here in front of us. So it's difficult for us to say through these narratives they don't necessarily explain everyone's motives all of the time. But can you guys tell me, can you give me some, some explanation of why it is likely at this time that Jesus was not alone, that there was such a crowd around him? So end of chapter one, especially where you have the, the the lepers we've discussed, he was healed and he went and told everyone about it, and everyone's thronging around him. And even after he goes out some days, we at least know that Jesus had performed miracles that people were aware of and were interested in coming to see him. But it is also important to note they are in fact listening to the preaching of the kingdom. So whatever their fundamental motive, whatever the fundamental motive, the primary draw for any individual person there was, Jesus was, in fact, preaching the gospel. So then we have the sick man, the paralytic, who is brought to him. And he's brought by a group of people. The text doesn't really make it clear necessarily, actually, whether it's only these four. They said they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Perhaps it was just the four men. Perhaps it was a group. Perhaps there was this family. We're not really told. Either way, we know that there were at least these four men who bring the paralytic to him. Now, how difficult was it for them to get to Jesus? We've already discussed there were there was no room around the door, so they couldn't just kind of walk in. There are some things we could certainly speculate regarding uh, the overall ease and what they attempted to do. We're not given any record that they attempted to call out to Jesus or speak to him. Perhaps there were simply too many people. But regardless, they didn't try to enter the door. They really couldn't have done that with the man that they were carrying. So... They decided, they devised this plan to be able to get to Jesus. So they go up onto the roof, and whether this house, of course, are not like most of ours in 21st century America, the house was usually utilized for some sort of space. It was a flat roof. We're given some sort of descriptions about that. Whether or not this roof had a staircase, perhaps an adjoining one did. Either way, it also wasn't just super easy. They didn't put him on an elevator and send him up to the top, right? They had, these four had to carry him up. And so then they, they have hatched this plan. They get up on the roof and they begin to unroof it. Now, if you're, if you're Patrick preaching here, 
to us, and this is, uh, as we can suppose, a fairly orderly assembly. There's not a bunch of clamoring going on in the moment. And then the roof starts to come off over your head. I mean, that's, you know, I, I don't know what you do, Patrick. I, I don't know what I do. But that's a, that's a very, it's a somewhat amusing picture that we're presented here, right? Now, of course, Jesus being God was not taken by surprise by this, but he waits for them to lower this man to the floor, to where he is in front of them. So, I'd like to talk a little bit about what, what do we see here in the text. After we have the description of them having opened up the roof and they let down the, the, the bed, The next verse, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. The first thing that's really interesting to note, all of the the translations I've looked at, I confess I did not bother to go and do a a study of the original language, but it all says there. Jesus doesn't, the, the text doesn't say Jesus saw his faith solely or explicitly singling him out. It says their faith. Why do you think that is? Absolutely. Absolutely. Anybody have anything to add to that? I think I think Woody's exactly right. We we see again part of the reason we we care about there is this description in the text of having gone up onto the roof and removed the roof. This was not an easy thing to do. They heard that Jesus was here in some from in some fashion, and brought their friend from some distance away carrying him four men. Now, four men splitting the burden isn't terrible, but that's still a fair amount of work to do, and then you've got to get him up on the roof. Why would you bother going through all this trouble? Unless you understood that Jesus was capable of healing. Unless you not just understood that this was a possibility, but you knew that this man could heal, whether he's your friend or your brother or your relative. They knew. They had faith. And we're given that here in the text of Scripture when Jesus saw their faith. So there's this, there's this corporate element here to the faith that Jesus is looking at, that he sees. Now certainly, we're, we're not treated this as this narrative. We're not given this rich doctrinal element here in terms of like we see in Paul's writings of the order of salvation. That's not the point of this, to look and say, oh, well, the man, he repented of his sins, and so Jesus forgave him. Certainly we understand those things are true from other portions in Scripture. But we're seeing highlighted here, their faith, the faith of the the paralytic, as well as the men who brought him, that was demonstrated by their actions. This is what we might refer to in some other sections of Scripture as the faith without works being dead. That a living faith, a true, real faith, has accompanying actions. Faith in our... When we have real faith, in Christ, there are accompanying actions that go along with that. It really changes us, and it really makes a difference in our lives. And so, they took all of this trouble to go up to the roof and to lower the man down to come to him because they knew 
that Jesus could, in fact, heal them. Now, what is Jesus' response? We've seen that he's done miracles. In fact, in the last, uh, uh, in the ending of chapter 1, he healed a man who came to him and asked for his, his sickness to be healed. So, how does Jesus respond? Does he physically heal the man? I mean, ostensibly, you would figure he's lo- they're lowering a man down, and Jesus would know, of course, that this man was paralyzed. So, he doesn't first reach out and physically heal him. And, of course, we're drawn to the text, and when Jesus saw their faith, so he sees the faith in these men, and his response is to say, your sins are forgiven. Now, this is certainly a... a uh, statement of forgiveness in a linguistic sense, but it is also the judicial act of forgiving this man of his sins. This man goes home a redeemed man today. So he he doesn't heal the man first. What are some things that we can take away from that? So just like in the end of chapter 1, when Jesus healed the, the leper, he's dealing with this, this element of the, the spiritual cleansing. If you will, you can make me clean. And he was moved with pity, but Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once so that you uh, say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest. So there's this, there's this prioritization here, absolutely. Of He knew what the man's fundamental real needs were. And as Patrick has made very clear, especially last week, it is not as though the physical doesn't matter. It is not that Jesus is opposed to physical healing. We're going to see that in this text, of course. It isn't even that Jesus doesn't, that the healing doesn't extend to the physical. It's that he understood, he saw to the heart, our problems are not primarily physical. Man's problem before God is fundamentally moral and spiritual. Man is in need of redemption. He's in need of a Savior. And that's what Jesus provides here. Now, we having the benefit of the understanding of the whole text of Scripture, we read verse uh, 5, your sins are forgiven, and our response should be something along the lines of, joy of rejoicing. We're thankful that Jesus can heal sins. We appreciate that. What do we read in verse 6? Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So, why were the Pharisees there? Why were they there that day? Right. We see the the expansion, the evolution uh, throughout the the Gospel of Mark, as well as the other Gospels, of their their treatment of Jesus. They move from from sort of these questions and and uh, questioning his authority and talking about blasphemy to trying to trap him and contradict him, and finally moving to to try to to destroy him ultimately. So they're not there. In faith, they're not there to hear the gospel preached. They're not even there to see great miracles. 
they're there to find fault with Jesus. So we have a juxtaposition between the paralytic and the men who brought him and their faith and the Pharisees, why they were there, their heart attitudes. And so in both cases, what is Jesus' response to the Pharisees? Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Jesus saw the hearts of both groups of men. And he was fundamentally first concerned about that with both. Not about whether or not they they did their tithes. Not about this man's sickness. He was fundamentally concerned with the spiritual conditions of both of these groups. Now, there's a question that, that we should ask here as well in the text. Were the Pharisees right that only God alone can forgive? Absolutely. Absolutely. So the issue is not... There, there's an important element here, too. Is their doctrine, in its theoretical sense, erred? Is it wrong? Not really. They're absolutely right. In, in, in that sense, in their theoretical sense, only God alone can forgive sins. But, of course, we understand that Jesus could forgive sins, that he, in fact, is God, and he shows them that as well. Before we read that, I want to ask you another question. Do the Pharisees have the right to question Jesus? Anybody want to... Want to yes? They have the right to question Jesus? So we have the, an issue of examining a teacher. What about setting themselves up in authority over Jesus? Do they have that right? What, what attitude do we see here presented by the Pharisees? Do they question him in the way we might a new teacher who, set, who, who is coming before us to examine him to determine whether he meets the criterion in the word? Or do they set themselves up in authority over him to declare that what he says can't possibly be true? I think we'll, we'll see in the text clearly from, from their heart attitude, it's the latter. So they, they don't have that right to set them up. John, you're absolutely right. I agree with you. They have, they have the right to question as we might examine a new teacher. But they don't have the right to set themselves up in authority over him. As we see later, we've talked uh, a great deal about the Sabbath today. We're going to see it later on in, uh, in Mark chapter 2. Patrick has already mentioned this. Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath. Now this doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care about the law. But Jesus is the giver of the law. And so the Pharisees do not have the right to set themselves up in authority over them and declare over Jesus and declare that he is not Lord. Yes, sir. Absolutely. 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 And indeed, we see here in the text, so what does Jesus say? So he asks them, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, up, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. He demonstrates his authority and power before them. 
But I think we ought to, to understand that Jesus does not demonstrate it as one is submitting himself to another for legitimate examination on the part of these Pharisees, on these unbelievers. They haven't come to legitimately examine him. They've come to entrap him. They've come to find fault with him. And so Jesus demonstrates his authority, but he doesn't do it in an acquiescence to their authority. So which is easier? For Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. I like Joe's face back there. We could do either. Right, right, exactly, exactly. I think that's that's kind of why Jesus asked the question, because it's the power of God alone. That's what's required for both of them. Neither is easier than the other. Neither is also difficult for Jesus, by the way. Neither is more difficult than the other for Jesus. This is not a difficult task for Jesus in, in either event. But he's helping them look at this issue of the heart versus the outer effects. We're, we're so concerned about this material stuff. We're so concerned about the man's paralysis. And we're so much more inclined to look at Jesus healing a paralyzed man as amazing than we are the regeneration of our own hearts or the forgiveness of sins for this man. Aren't we? I think, again, I think a large part of the reason we have this here in in Mark, the continual juxtaposition of the physical versus the spiritual. Now, we can go much too far with this, certainly. But our text here does give us this clear demonstration. Men look outwardly, but God looks on the hearts. These things really matter, and we tend to act like they don't. We tend to act like it is not that much of a miracle for God to have reached inside me and changed my heart and given me faith. But it's no less miraculous than healing the paralyzed man. Does anybody have any questions about any of that so far? Yeah, yeah. I'm going to tell you later with Lazarus. Right, right, absolutely. So when it says that they were questioning in their hearts, do you think there was actual inner turmoil of what they were sent there to do versus what they're now seeing? Or what do you think that is? When you say, uh, uh, if you wouldn't mind expounding, inner turmoil. It says the the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts Mm -hmm, after mm -hmm. they saw Jesus tell this guy. And then they, they they voice it, why does this man say this? So, I, I would say our text really implies, uh, yeah, certainly the ESV includes the quotation marks, but based on Jesus' response, I don't believe they vocalized anything. These are their inward thoughts that are either, it's either a compilation of multiple men's thoughts, or just as likely it's, it's both that and, they didn't say that out loud. Jesus perceives in his spirit that they just questions within themselves. Absolutely. But along that same line, uh, suddenly they're being convicted by the truth uh, 
of what Christ has said, which is easier. Mm-hmm. They have mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. that, but they're not willing to pay attention to their conviction. They're saying no. Absolutely. I'm going to get out here and persecute Christ. Right. Right. That's a very good point. Absolutely. Every every time they're here and confronted by Jesus with the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel, they have a choice before them. They're being pricked. And they have a choice before them of how they're going to respond to that. And again, so that, uh, uh, Jeremy, this, this marks kind of the evolution as well. This, um, their reasoning within themselves, they don't actually vocally address it here first. They, they do that later, and throughout Mark and, and the other Gospels, we see that. There's, there's an evolution. They become more hardened. They refuse to listen to the conviction of the truth that Jesus is presenting them with. They become more hardened and, uh, and openly question him vocally, and then openly attack him as well. I mean, if you think about it, if the Pharisees did not have a hard heart, and they were open to the fact that this... Because they knew. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They, they should know above anyone there... If Jesus, if he says that, who he's saying he is, and without a hard heart, they should just go, the Messiah's coming. Absolutely, he is here. absolutely. But they've already decided, right? They don't want Jesus to be this Messiah. And so absolutely. They're questioning, kind of Jeremy's question: Who can forgive sins but God alone? They, they don't want Jesus to be the Messiah. Right, 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 and right. They know in their reasoning. That's what he's saying. I, that's who I am. And so they know the answer. But there's this inner frustration with trying to shut Jesus down. Absolutely. Going on. It's made abundantly apparent. I mean, even in John, Jesus talks about multiple things testifying to him. Both, both the Father at his baptism, John the Baptist, the scriptures, the, the, uh, his own works, Moses, the prophets, all of these things are testifying to him uh, to the point where whenever he's interacting with and you don't know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, so then he moves to the miracle. Exactly. And so he moves. He immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they asked question within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? I mean, so, so is, that a, is that a tricky statement on Jesus' part? Is he going, ah, you really, yeah, man, you got a good point, you know? <laughs> no. Why do you question these things? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven and to say rise up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then heals the man. The miracle testifies to who he really is. And so even if at that point, even if, so you say, okay, well, you figure the Pharisees, they're kind of already set against him and they're like, now wait a minute, you know, I don't, that, he's got to be saying he's God and I'm not okay with that. And then he does the miracle in front of them. Now, we're not given directly in the text anything about the Pharisees following that. But it's very, in, in this particular text, it's very clear from following text, though, they did not join in. At the end, we have the, the paralytic rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed. They were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Did the Pharisees rejoice? Did they accept Jesus? No. No. So not even the miracle. They, they were not willing. They would already decided beforehand. That Jesus, that they weren't going to accept Jesus as the Messiah. I also, also Jesus was threatening their jobs. 
Right, right. Indulgences. Yeah, I, I just like that he points out the two things, you know, which one's easier. Right. Obviously implying that one is definitely harder than the other, if he's asking which one is easier. And then he does both. Right, right. Just to seal the deal. Is that there's no this is it. Here, just, I'm going to do both. Why? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's just, that's cool. So were you saying that the, uh, the scribes who had the doubt in their heart didn't see it and didn't recognize it? I'm not sure I understand your question. What I'm saying here is that the Pharisees who were here, who questioned in their hearts, saw the miracle and then did not join in with the others in at least even inward rejoicing, regardless of what they may have done outwardly. That's not the way I'm reading it. So... So this is one of those areas where we have um, that that word all can refer to literally everyone in existence, literally everyone who is present, the majority of people. It can refer to a quality or quantity of people. When we talk about, uh, when we get into issues of, of Calvinism, particularly when you talk about passages in John or John 6 or John 10 or others, there are these questions of what exactly does all mean? Does it mean every man who was present? Now, you're absolutely correct. In this text, we don't see any indication directly in this verse that the Pharisees were not included in this. Uh, you are correct as far as the ESV. I believe the KJV references the says it lists them as Pharisees. I have not myself checked on the the wording translation for what the origin of that is. The KJV does say the Pharisees. Yeah, the KJV says scribes, but um, in sixteen, like right after this happened, you know, he went to eat with the tax collectors and stuff, and the scribes and Pharisees were still The indication from the rest of of the following gospel as well as the others is that these, when it speaks generally to the scribes and Pharisees, they did not repent and convert. They did not accept Jesus for who he was. Yes, sir. That's true. We see the general direction, yeah. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So I was, you know, in studying through this, conflicted on whenever they said all, were they referring to all people who were present, or was he saying all the scribes who were uh, conflicted about this? Well, so I I would say if you look at, at verse 12, and he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, that before them all, that's referencing the entire crowd of people who was there. So now we could certainly have a discussion about whether or not that all then means that they were all amazed and every single one, including the scribes, glorified God. We could certainly, that's, that's kind of what we've been discussing here, we could discuss whether or not it includes them for sure. But the all there does not reference solely the scribes or is specifically pointed to them. It's the, the crowd who's been gathered. All, everybody there, including the scribes. 
that's kind of the point of the story is he was able to change their hearts to the point where they were glorifying God. I think looking at the, the following text, that it's difficult to say that that is for sure what's going on in the passage. Based on Mark's writing, I feel like he would have, and immediately the scribes mm-hmm, mm-hmm. joined in. Or, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I feel like he probably would have I mean, accented on that. I said that's what, it, what does it mean to glorify God, right? So, right. You know, praise him, right? To make him famous is you know, a modern way to say it. Absolutely. I, absolutely. Yeah, we only have one verse that says one man was saved. Right? Yeah. Doesn't mean just because all were glorifying doesn't mean all walked away. Absolutely. Absolutely. Perhaps we could also speak in generalities too in this passage. I mean, as a as a whole, the Pharisees and scribes are not as a group. That, I mean, they they are always as a group in opposition to the things of God. So there's onesies and twosies like Nicodemus that are absolutely redeemed, and we see that in the text. But the reality is, 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 you know, they're always pitted against Christ. So, I mean, in, in, you know, that would, that would be a, a tenant of really, uh, you know, I think the, the exposition. Is this, mm-hmm. Look, mm-hmm. this is a group of people, the scribes and Pharisees, and their inclination is always to be in opposition to the things of God. So that's what, so they are simply falling into uh, their own character categorically here. In other words, there is nothing new to see here with the scribes and Pharisees. They're Amen. acting like they always do in opposition to the things of the Lord Jesus. But, however, what's amazing is that, just as Adam said, what's amazing here is in front of their very eyes, the Son of God heals and He also forgives sin. Amen. And, Amen. and for them to somehow possibly walk away so that... What we see here, the light that's shown in the Pharisees and the, in the, in the scribes of the Pharisees, is that it's absolutely breathtaking that they cannot look at Christ as Savior. Somehow, they've shockingly walked away from this and not fallen on their faces and repented. Amen. Amen. So that's what that's that's what's happening here. In this and as a slight addition to that, keep in mind this this is not the first miracle. This is not the first healing that they at least were aware of. I I, I admit I I can't recall off the top of my head if they were directly present. If it ever says that they were directly present in in a miracle before with healing the leper, they absolutely were aware of that. They know. They knew that coming into this. So this wasn't the first the first indication that they would have had either. The, the last thing I would like to draw out of this here is that we've already uh, uh, kind of commented on, on Lazarus a little bit, and we rightly understand that to be a picture of regeneration. This healing is a picture of regeneration as well. What we're, see, what we're shown here in the text is that Jesus says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. The command is given, boom, he gets up and he walks out. This is, the, this is regeneration in our hearts. We are commanded to repent and believe. God provides that regenerating power through the Holy Spirit. And having been able, the man just does it. He gets up and does it. That is the response of the regenerate heart to the, the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And so there's, there's often we have these, these conversations, these questions about faith and free will 
and our ability to do this or what our natural inclinations are. And this is what we're seeing. A lot of times we can, we can talk about this when we talk about Lazarus, for example. Does it make sense for God, for Jesus to have risen Lazarus from, brought him to life and then said to come forth and Lazarus said, nah, I like it here. That, that doesn't make any sense. For Jesus to have healed the paralytic and said, no, nah, I, got, I got really used to laying on this bed. I like it here. I'm going to stay right here. That doesn't make any sense. The natural response to the life given, to the healing given, is that he, they come out of the tomb, he rises up, he, gets, he takes his bed, and he goes home. That's, that's the response of the regenerate heart to the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, of course, we, we've seen his sins have been forgiven. And this is that outward picture of that that Jesus provides as well. Does anybody have any questions or comments on that? So Luke's account of the same burial miracle, he does mention that there were Pharisees with his Thank you. Thank so, you. Scripture answering our question. Thank you. Excellent. Scribes <laughs> and Pharisees. That's the, 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 the Lazarus preacher joke, you know, that, you know, that he has this, and it, but it's, it's powerful, but he has to say Lazarus come forth. Because the command is so powerful that if you just said, come forth, everybody goes up out of their grave. Yeah. Right. But it, it, you know, it speaks you right. know, in, right. a, in a humorous way to say the fact that no, right. that command is come forth, and he does exactly what his Lord says. In, in opposition to what we said last week with the, this guy who is immediately disobedient. Right, right. But in in consistently with what we talked about when we first introduced the book of Mark, the use, Mark's use of the word immediately, that, that part of what goes on there is the recognition that when Jesus speaks, things happen. Jesus is speaking with the power of God because he is God, and so things happen. Jesus told him to get up and take his bed, and he got up and took his bed. Then that happened right away. The, the response was immediate. Any other questions? All right, let's go ahead and pray here.